Father God, we just thank you just for the grace you've demonstrated to us uh, today alone and just allowing us to be here to worship you, to learn more from your word, but also the grace of sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for, on our, for our sins and to rise again so that we may have eternal life. Lord, we thank you just for, for Christ, who is the foundation of our faith and also the reason why we can come to know you more. And so we just pray that you bless this time. We pray that you guide Pastor Roger as he uh, goes through your word and talk about this sensitive topic that is very relevant for today. So we just pray these things in your son Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, thank you, Brother Ethan, for uh, the introduction. Uh, it's good to see you all again. It's good to be back with you after two weeks of church functions. Uh, we celebrated Good Friday together as a church body, and then we had the Foster the, Foster the Bay presentation last week. And so I hope that the time with the church family has, has been a good one uh, for you guys. And um, yeah, it is, though, good to be just back with joint heirs. So um, this week and next week, we're going to be closing out our Why We Believe series. We're closing out Half a year. I don't know if you guys realize that, but we, we've been in this for half a year, uh, our half a year study on uh, the elements in our doctrinal statement. And uh, these are, it's only been an introductory study. There's so much more that we could have said. Uh, even as, I've, as I was prepping for tonight's sermon, I, I realized that there's just so much more that uh, I could have addressed and touched on and uh, just didn't have an opportunity to. Some of it we can cover next, next week, but... Um, yeah, basically what I had planned to cover tonight on my uh, little um, scratch piece of paper, I didn't follow completely. So um, that's, just, that's just how it is. Um, I know it's been a long series, and there's just so much more that, that could have been covered. Uh, but Pastor Ray and I pray that uh, this has been beneficial to your soul, and not only reaffirming and reinforcing the truths that you know, but uh, also opening the door for, uh, for you to see that there's so much more that we can learn as Christians uh, and that we can strive to know and apply these truths in our lives um, it's bit, so that we can become more like Christ. I know uh, at times theology can, can seem to be something that's only for nerds or professional ministers, um, but uh, hopefully you see that theology is so much more. Right? It, 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 uh, it's inherently practical for all of us. Um, the practicality of theology is going to be evident within these next two weeks because we're going to be looking uh, at, God's, at God's Word. We're going to see what He has to say in regards to gender roles and sexuality. We are going to cover a little bit um, more than gender roles, but for the most part, gender roles and sexuality. Uh, my aim is not necessarily to pour out everything that, I've, uh, that I know and that I've been reading and studying uh, so that you can be equipped to go take down whoever has an opposing view from you, uh, but to humbly present to you what Scripture says so that we as a church family can humbly embrace what God intends for us to do and to have biblically faithful, productive, compassionate, and gracious conversations with those who have questions about what the Bible teaches about gender roles and sexuality. So let's pray for God's help tonight. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your loving kindness to us and saving us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We are thankful that you give us your word to help us see your mind, your thoughts, and your intentions for us. And as we embark on a study that presents us with concepts that may run contrary to the thoughts and beliefs of the culture around us, we pray that you would help us to have the mind of Christ. I pray that you would help me to be exceedingly loving and gracious as I communicate what your word has to say to us. 
May your word have its intended effect on our lives, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, before we begin our study, it's another lecture sermon, or lerman, if you will, uh, I want to preface what I'm about to say with a brief word on the human heart. God has created our hearts to be dynamic or multifaceted. So we, we all have dynamic hearts. And what I mean by that is that we operate through three dynamic responses. Our hearts are not static, they're dynamic. It's just shaped by the things that are around us. We are thinking, feeling, and choosing people. And these, th- these three things have much to do with how we respond to different situations, even if we're not really sure why we feel the way that we feel. Our emotions are driven by our core beliefs. Our core beliefs, that's the cognitive area on this, uh, um, this heart diagram. Our core beliefs are what we believe, that, the things that we've been taught, the things that we've adopted as truth for ourselves. And our emotions feed off of our core beliefs. So that's the effective over there. Um, that's the effective part. So our emotions are driven by our core beliefs. And our emotions, in turn, drive the choices that we make, whether they be actions that we take or core beliefs that we reinforce or build. God has made us thinking, feeling, choosing beings. And as a result, when we encounter new or challenging situations, we must evaluate how we are interpreting and responding to these new situations in our hearts to determine whether we are rightly responding to what is around us. And I bring that up to you because we may cover over the next two weeks some things that might anger you, some things, some core, some, some biblical truths that challenge core beliefs that you've been taught. And, it, and because it might cause you to be angry, you, we need to look at why we're angry. Right? What are the core beliefs that are being challenged? Why do we hold to those core beliefs? Why is it leading to the emotions that we feel? And why is that causing us to respond in the way that we're responding? I'm going to do my very best to be compassionate and gracious, but there are still going to be times where the truth of the Word of God will be offensive to you no matter how compassionate or gracious I am. And so if you encounter feelings of anger towards what we'll be studying through God's word tonight, I encourage you to examine your hearts and try and identify that root of your disagreement or even anger. Uh, If if it is really a result of me being truly unloving and harsh, I invite you to speak with me, uh, to confront me on my sin. Not, you know, don't just yell it out. Just come up to me in private. Um, However, if if you look at your own heart and you're you're realizing the reason why you're responding the way you're responding is because I'm challenging a core belief that you have, that you hold, I would like to encourage you to thoroughly examine that core belief, to go to the scriptures, to look at all that the scriptures have to say in its context, to see what God's word has to say about himself and his purposes, to see if perhaps the basis for your core belief needs to be changed. And I'm not, again, I'm not saying this to excuse myself for being offensive, because it's not my goal to be offensive tonight. However, I understand that the Word of God is inherently offensive. So um, let's humbly turn to the Scriptures to see what God has to say about our gender and His purposes for us in our genders. We're going to look at that first in God's design from creation. God's design from creation. So 
our, our study begins fittingly in the, from the very beginning. So turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at verse 26, or starting at verse 26. Okay, so Genesis 1, 26. We're going to be reading up to verse 31. Verse 26 says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. As God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit work together in the creation of the world, God the Father outlines his purpose in doing so in verses 26 to 27. And as you can see, God says that his purpose is to make man in our image. There's only God there. Except for, is God in the Trinity talking to himself? All right, so God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit talking to themselves. And God has a purpose for creating man in his own image. And we're going to see that for a number of different reasons. The first reason why God creates us in his image is because we represent God in the way that we are made as thinking, feeling, and choosing beings. In a way, unlike the animals... In creation, we are able to imitate God in what we would call the communicable attributes of God, the attributes of God that share the, that God shares with us, such as wisdom, love, and having a will. And these are the communicable attributes of God. The incommunicable attributes of God are the things that God does not share with us, but the communicable ones are the ones that we share with Him. We're, we can go through all of those, but this is not necessarily a theology class on the perfections of God, so we're not going to, right? But the first reason why we are made in his image is because we're supposed to reflect him as thinking, feeling, choosing beings. Uh, The second reason why God created us in his image is to reflect him in his rule over the earth. When God created Adam, we see that he gave Adam a command to rule over creation. Later in verse 28, he, sa- he, he gives him a command, says, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So um, this command to rule is explained as, as God says, men and women are supposed to take ownership of the earth, right? to be in the earth, to fill it and to subdue it. This is God's mandate from creation. He's given us a purpose from the very beginning to fill it and to subdue it. We're supposed to be his representatives throughout the earth, on the earth. And this is something that we often miss when we think about the creation that God has given us. Oftentimes, especially here in San Francisco, we think of God's creation merely as something that we must protect. And that's with good reason. 
Right? We should be good stewards of the planet that God has given us to inhabit. Right? We only get one, although he's going to redo it later. But still, we should take care of it. Right? He gave it to Adam, and he said, hey, you're supposed to cultivate this garden. That was Adam's job. That's our job, too. But in thinking about conservation, we've swung the pendulum too far sometimes, forgetting that not only are we supposed to steward the creation, but we're supposed to subdue it. Right? Not just steward, but to subdue it, to rule over it. God put Adam on the earth as a vice regent, as a, as a representative king of himself on this planet. God gave us this earth not just to look at, but to use it for human flourishing, not just to leave it untouched. So this command to fill the earth and subdue it, it's a call to steward the planet well and use it for our benefit. So that's the second reason God made us in his image, to represent his rule on on the earth. The third reason why God created us in his image is found in the union between a man and his wife. He created us so that through the example of marriage, we could get a picture of the relationship that exists between the members of the Godhead. We're going to look at that more later, but being made in God's image demonstrates in part how the members of the Trinity relate to one another. There's unity, there's equality, but there's also a mutual love and submission to one another. God made us in his image so we can understand him and his salvation plan better. He could have created any other animal or animals to demonstrate to the world more of who he is, but he specifically makes mankind and mankind alone in his image. No other animal is made in God's image, just humans. And we're not really animals, we're humans. It's for that reason that Paul calls out all of mankind in Romans 1, 18-19. He says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them because God put it there. He put in our hearts an understanding that he exists. And that's why every single person who's ever lived in human history, has no excuse when it comes to not believing in God because he put it on our hearts. And that's why there are a lot of people out there who are always looking for answers of how we got here because they know that we didn't just get here out of nowhere. We must have come from somewhere. So everyone's trying to figure out how do we get here? What put us here? And of course, the word of God tells us that God put us here, that he created us. And he created us out of nothing, right? Through the word of his power, he created us. But because mankind chose to ignore what was already in their hearts, that God is there, that he created us, that he made us, because we chose to ignore him and we chose not to honor him as God, he gave us over to our sins and to worship false gods until the right time came to save us so that we could see how much we need him. So being made in God's image also reinforces this idea that each human being has dignity and worth because God specifically put in every single one of us his image. 
right? So we all have dignity. We all have worth. And for this reason, we value every single human life that God has given. And we strive to live in thankfulness to God for how he has made us specifically. If God does not make mistakes and he creates every single one of us with a specific purpose, then we have a job to do as an image bearer, as someone who represents God to others. Now, some might try to argue, especially in our current cultural climate, that our gender, unlike our biological sex, is a cultural concept. That it is okay for us to raise children genderless and to let them decide what gender they will be because gender and biological sex are different. This is not what we see in the Bible. That's not the case biblically. You can make the argument that what is socially acceptable for a particular gender is determined culturally. For example, the wearing of kilts by men, which some condescendingly refer to as skirts, It's more acceptable in Scotland than it is here in America. Why? Because in Scotland, they've determined that that's culturally acceptable dress. Right here, if you saw someone wearing a skirt, you're probably thinking, that person's got mental issues. Modern Scots do not wear kilts except for national or formal occasions. But then again, kilts are more culturally acceptable here than they are, uh, there than they are here because that's a part of their heritage. If you saw someone walking around with kilts now, you're just like, okay, either you're really proud to be Scottish or you got something wrong with you. The expression of gender does depend on culture, but the gender God has made us is not something that we get to change. We'll talk about that a little bit more later, but it's important to recognize what aspect of gender is defined by the culture. It's not gender itself. It's the expression of gender. That being said, we do need to recognize that there are some people There are some people who genuinely struggle at times with feeling at odds with the gender that God has made them. I'll say that again. There are people who genuinely struggle at times with feeling at odds with the gender that God has made them. You cannot go up to them and tell them that it's just in their head. It's not right. Okay? You're dismissing what actually may be going on in their lives. So you can't tell them that it's just in their head. This feeling of being at odds with the gender that they were born um, with, um, or perhaps feeling no gender at all, is something that's been identified as gender dysphoria. We want to be compassionate to them in their struggle, but we also have to be firm as well. Because God has made us who we are. No matter how dissatisfied with ourselves we are for a purpose. God has made us who we are. No matter how dissatisfied we are with ourselves for a purpose. We see that especially in God's purpose for gender at at creation when we look at Genesis 2, 15-24. Which explains in greater detail what happened on that sixth day of creation. Now, in TV shows, especially ones that are like um, police or, or law enforcement Um, shows, um, one of the most common openings that you see when you watch these shows is they reveal the climax to you first, right? And then 
after a commercial break, they'll bring you back and they say, you know, six hours later or, you know, a week earlier. I'm sorry, um, six hours before or a week before. And so, uh, and they do that intentionally to build the drama. What we saw in Genesis 1 was the broad summary of what God did in creating man, both male and female. Genesis 2, 4 and following, shows how God created man and woman in greater detail than that summarization found in Genesis 1. So, in a sense, Genesis 2 is kind of like the um, six hours before the event happened. This is the th- these are the things that, that led up to the creation of man. Now, as you know, God creates Adam and puts him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it. God has capped off every single day of creation by looking at what he has done, and he's called it good. However, after he created Adam and gave Adam his job assignment for the garden, he says for the first time that something is not good. It's not good that Adam is alone. And so God makes a note that he will make Adam a helper suitable for him. Now that phrase, suitable for uh, suitable to him could, be transla- could also be translated corresponding to him or matching him. It carries this idea that Adam's helper will be similar to him. So we're not talking about a dog, man's best friend, but we're talking about an actual human helper that will be suitable to Adam, that will be similar to Adam. And that also means that Adam's helper will neither be superior to him or inferior to him, but will be just like him. So it's interesting here that Moses identifies, Moses the writer of of Genesis, uh, Moses identifies the woman as a helper, which in the Hebrew is the word azar. This is is significant because this word often refers to God as a divine deliverer or helper to his people in the Old Testament. It's rarely used of humans. So what's the point? of calling the woman helper. It points to the particular function that God has designed for women. Women help men in the areas where they are lacking, making it possible for a man to achieve aspects of God's command that he could not do alone. While that that refers primarily to childbirth, since the command God gave Adam and Eve was to be fruitful and multiply, this can also refer to other aspects of God's plans, as it will be through Eve and subsequent generations of women that Messiah will eventually come to live on this earth before dying on the cross in our place and then rising from the dead three days later. If you zoom back out just a little bit, it might seem as if God had made a mistake because he creates man, he says, oh, it's not good for man to be alone. I'm going to make him a helper. Or it might seem like he made a mistake. Because he should have, if you think about it, he should have created Eve at the same time. But he didn't. Because he created female animals at the same time as he created the male animals. So why didn't he do that with Eve? Why was it different with Eve? God didn't make a mistake. And right, we know that. But... He intentionally created Adam by himself initially. It's not clear whether Adam felt a sense of deficiency as he was naming the animals, another task that God gave him um, to do, uh, which uh, the the act of naming is also a show of authority. So Adam's partially fulfilling, subduing, uh, ruling over the animals. Uh, But it's clear that God already knew, that God had already planned to create Adam a helper suitable. He already planned on creating 
a wife for Adam. The special creation of Eve is not an insignificant detail. When you go back and you look at the creation account of the animals in Adam, you'll notice that God created every single one of them out of the dust of the earth. Or if you want to count the water creatures, he created the water creatures in the water. Right? But the point is, God created these animals from what he had in the land or in the sea. Yet with Eve, Adam does, I mean, God does something that he's not done. He created her from another creature, from Adam specifically. And he creates her in a very curious fashion. He puts Adam into a divinely induced sleep, and then he, atten- he, uh, he essentially does surgery. He opens Adam up, takes the rib out, and then he fashions Eve from Adam's rib, and then he sews Adam back up, right? First surgery in the Bible. Um, oh, quick note. I'm referring to Adam's wife here as Eve because that's how you know her, right? But at this time in the scriptures, she doesn't have a name yet. And technically, Adam doesn't really have a name either because the Hebrew word for man is Adam. There's another word um, that we'll get to later. But technically, he doesn't have a name either. It's just man and um, woman. Um, right? But I'm, I'm just using the names out of, out of sequence so that you're a little more familiar with it. Right? Now, um, like I said, the word Adam is one of the general words for man or mankind. It didn't always refer to Adam the man. Um, and Eve, at this point, has not been given a name. And be, her being known as, as woman is not disrespectful, but it's just with, in line with how Adam was being identified as man and woman. Now, the creation of Eve from Adam's rib is significant because it shows a close interrelationship between man and wife, something that Adam notes in 2.23. Right? When God presents Eve to, or presents his wife to him, Adam breaks out, in odd poetry. This is the first instance of poetry in the Bible. At least from a spoken point of view. He breaks out in poetry knowing that Eve was made from him. And he says, This is now a bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man. He's in awe because he's like, Wow, this has never been done before. This is amazing. She is from me. And the Hebrew is actually a little more beautiful here than the English because when Adam calls her woman, he uses that other, another word for um, man that he builds it off of. So the, the first word you know, Adam, but the other word that you know that, uh, that you don't know, I'm going to tell you right now, the other word is ish. And when he looks at the wife that God is presenting him with, he says, wow, this is Isha, right? She comes out of Ish, right? So they're really tightly related. That's a closeness that was not present in the initial creation, which is why God purposely created Eve in this way. He wanted them to be so tightly knit together that even their designation as Ish and Isha make it very clear that they were meant for one another. God did not create Eve later because she was inferior because he needed to, cre- to correct the mistake. God delays the creation of Eve so that in marriage between a man and his wife, it's not just a social uh, or a, it's not just a societal institution, but it's a theological point. When a man and wife come together in marriage and they do what married people do, they become one flesh before God. An individual man 
and an individual female become one and together uniquely represent the image of God. On their own, they bear aspects of the image of God, but together, uniquely, they bear the image of God more fully. And that means that man is not superior to woman, nor is woman superior to man. Both are equal in importance in person and in quality before God. God has a particular function and purpose for the gender that he has given us. Our gender is not separated from our biological sex. They are synonymous, as can be seen in the creation of Eve and what God has commanded man and woman to do here on earth. God's design is purposeful, which is why our compassion for those who may struggle with gender dysphoria cannot surpass God's intention and purpose. The goal in ministering to those who struggle with gender dysphoria is not just to say to them, stop struggling. It's not loving to them. Rather, the goal in ministering to them is to, is to try and help them recognize the totality of their sin nature before God, their need for salvation through Jesus Christ for all their sins, not just sexual sins. And the need to conform every sinful desire to the righteousness of Christ as they strive to love God. We would say the same thing about the goal, to minister, the goal in ministering to someone who struggles with same-sex attraction. Or even someone who struggles with inordinate heterosexual lust. The goal is not particular deliverance from just these sexual sins, but it's to help people realize that they need salvation from all their sins. I know that might seem like I'm trying to simplify the issue, but compassionate yet firm ministry to all who struggle with sin or sinful desires, no matter what those desires might be, does not simply tell people to just stop sinning by changing their behavior. Behavior modification without repentance without a love for God, without a desire to be like Christ through the grace God provides, only produces self-righteous people who are still lost in their sins. Behavior modification is not the goal. We want to help people understand the totality of their sinfulness before God. The fact that he is rightfully angry at us because of our sin, yet he has done something to deliver us from our sin. That God saves us from his own wrath by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the, Christ, on, on the cross in our place. And so that's why the goal in ministering to them is to help them see the totality of their sinfulness, not necessarily the fact that they have to repent of that particular sin. They do, but it's all of it, not just that particular one. And there's, there's still much more to learn when it comes to ministering to those who struggle with gender dysphoria. I am not, by any means, an expert in this. Um, but we as believers must recognize that this is just the beginning of the conversation. And we must, ne we must rec recognize that even though this is the beginning of the conversation, the end goal of the conversation is always the gospel. Right? We have to keep the gospel central. If we don't keep the gospel central, then we, we lose our focus. The gospel is not just about loving people and treating them equally. That's not the gospel. If someone tells you that that's what the gospel is, that's not what Christ came for. That's not the message that he wants us to give to people. 
He wants us to call out sinners, all sinners, you, me, our neighbors, to repentance from sin and faith and love in Jesus Christ. Understanding then the goodness of God's design for gender. We, we, we have to move on a little bit um, to understand how God's design for gender is revealed in marriage despite sin. So God's um, unchanging purpose for marriage despite sin. Now, as you know, that's the second point. Um, as you know, sin enters God's perfect creation in Genesis 3. And it happens with God's permission. God does not make mistakes. So he was not surprised by the fall. He allowed it to demonstrate his love and his saving power to us. He has a purpose for allowing dysfunction and sin to enter into our world. Now, let's see what God intends despite the fall for all mankind as we skip down to Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15, we're going to read to verse 20. God says, he's talking to the serpent initially, um, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he, that is God, said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which, about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and th- thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." Now the man called his wife's name Eve, there we go, because she was the mother of all the living. Of course, it would be really fascinating to look at all of Genesis 3 with you, but we don't have time. Um, here's something I, I want you to, not, something I don't want you to miss, though. God does not start over after mankind fell, but continues to follow through because even the fall fell in line with his purposes. Some of you may have put some thought into this, but if we were in God's place, if we were in charge of making our own world and something catastrophic like the fall of mankind blew up our perfect creation, what would we do? I know what I would do. What I would do, given the ability, would instead of trying to preserve it, just restart it. Right, why wouldn't you just restart it? It's easier. It's easier just to restart it. For example, growing up, and probably, maybe, even now, when I played, uh, I like playing sports video games. If I got off to a really bad start, I don't try and redeem the video game. Right, if I threw like four interceptions on Madden, I'm not going to be like, oh, let me just cl- try and climb back on this. No, it's like, no one's going to know. I'm just going to reset the game. I'm like I said, I might still do that now. I, I'm, not, I'm not admitting to that. Um, right? But why, why would I restart the game? Because I want perfection. I don't want to have to fight my way back. It's a more glorious comeback story for sure. But I don't want to fight my way back. I just want to dominate. I just want perfection. 
God could have reset creation, right? And we would have been none the wiser. We would have been none the wiser. Yet God allowed for sin to enter into the world because he had a plan for it and he had a plan for us. What is that plan? Why must we endure the consequences of the fall rather than get a fresh start? Because from a pure ability standpoint, God could have just reset everything and erased the consequences of the fall by judging the serpent, Adam and Eve, and the rest of the world that was infected by sin and then started over, and his justice still would not have been compromised. Right? If he executed judgment on them and started over, his justice would not be compromised. He could have done that, but he didn't. He had already determined in eternity past that he was going to allow for sin to enter into the world and that he would save us from sin so he could demonstrate his mercy and his grace to us so that he could show us who he is in his fullness. And so after announcing the serpent's punishment, God reveals what he's going to do. He reveals the end at the very beginning. And he says to the serpent, who's representing Satan at this time, um, because he's uh, positioned himself against mankind, that he's going to put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. So you have these two seeds in competition against one another. The seed of the woman is ultimately going to bruise or crush the serpent's head. That's a fatal blow. If you have your head crushed, you die, yes? Yes, right? Okay. <laughs> right? Um, the serpent, he is going to bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. He's going to lose in the end. He will die, but he's going to inflict a wound on the seed of the woman. Now, from our vantage point in history, we understand that the bruising of the heel of the seed of the woman is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on the cross. We understand that. The crushing of the serpent's head also occurred at the cross, but Satan will not be fully defeated until Christ returns to judge Satan and cast Satan into the lake of fire. Until then, the effects of sin will continue to plague us, even if we have repented of our sins and believed upon Jesus Christ. What we see, though, in the next few verses shows us the consequences that mankind continues to experience until Christ returns and makes everything right. In verse 16, God tells the woman he's going to greatly multiply her pain in childbirth and that her desire will be for her husband and he'll rule over her. That first part in verse 16 explains that the woman will continue to have one of her functions from God's creation plan, childbirth. She doesn't lose that function even though she sinned, but instead what's going to happen is she's going to experience pain in childbirth. Now, we will never know what childbirth will look like or would have looked like if Adam and Eve have not sinned. We'll never know. I cannot tell you that it would have been painless because they sinned, so... We don't know. But, but in childbirth, when, when women experience the birth pains, that's a painful reminder of mankind's rebellion when new life is born. And that's why God, allows, uh, that's why God says here that he's going to allow for pain to be multiplied at childbirth. Now, the second part of verse 6, this is another consequence of the fall. It's a little trickier to understand, but it says here that the woman's desire will be for her husband and he will rule over her. What does that mean? Some have suggested that women will have romantic desire for their husbands, but instead of receiving romance in return, women will be dominated by their husbands. 
And for some of us, that seems to make sense because women seem to be more in touch with their feelings while men are distant and um, at times just not aware of how insensitive they can be. But that's not a defensible view according to the grammar. The word desire here is similarly used by God when God warns Cain that sin is crouching at the door and its desire was for Cain. So Cain must master sin by doing what's right. So if that's the way that God uses it just a few verses later, that same word for desire is not a romantic desire, but one to rule, one to rule over her husband. And despite this desire to rule over her husband, the woman will not succeed, but will instead be ruled over by her husband. This does not mean that male headship is a result of the fall, because male headship existed before the fall. Okay? It, it was established at creation, which is why Adam was created first, which is why Adam was provided a helpmate, and which is why Adam was given permission to name his wife. Instead, what is a result of the fall is the inordinate desire of some ladies to rule over their husbands, only to be frustrated by their husbands who will not yield to their wives' desire to rule over them. We'll talk about that a little bit more uh, when we talk about God's purpose for role distinctions. But what is important to recognize here is that the desire to rule is present as a consequence of the fall. God then turns his attention to Adam in verses 17 to 19. He reveals to Adam that a consequence of Adam's sin is the curse of the ground and the increased difficulty and toil that results in his work. Now, I know that at times in your jobs or if you're stuck doing homework, it seems like work itself is a product of the fall. Or am I just the only one who thought that? Um, right? Especially when work's difficult and you have to deal with difficult co- coworkers, customers, or both, you just think, man, I hate work. Work really sucks. And this is a product of the fall. It has to be. But remember that at creation, God gave Adam jobs. Right? Adam was to cultivate the garden. He was to name the animals. So work itself is not a result of the fall. What is a result of the fall is hard, is the difficulty, the futility of work. Frustration in a work is a result of the fall. Going back to the woman briefly, you'll notice that there's no mention of curse when God's talking to the woman. When God talks to the serpent, he says to the serpent, cursed are you, you'll be on your belly for the rest of your days because of what you've done. Now, when we get back to the man, we see that curse is back, that curse language is back. Curse returns to affect the man because he is principally responsible for the fall. Yes, Eve was deceived, but Adam had a responsibility to watch out for his wife. Adam had a responsibility to shepherd his wife, and he did not do so. And so that's why it is through Adam all fell. Through Adam all die. That's why we need the second Adam to come in and to give us new life. The curse that affects him is not one necessarily that, affect, that affects him directly, but it affects everything around him. It affects creation and the amount of difficulty that all who follow the man will have in work. Life is no longer going to be easy. Um, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be futile. And the futility of our hard work will ultimately come full circle as the man will work hard to provide and even perhaps make himself great only to return to the dust from which he was created. 
as you just saw, the presence of sin in our lives does not change the trajectory and overall purpose of God's plan for mankind in marriage. We are still to be fruitful and to multiply and fill the earth. We are still called to subdue the earth and to rule over all creation. These are not products of the fall, but are commands that God has given us. They're the purposes that he has for us from the very beginning when everything was still good. The only thing that changed is the difficulty we will experience as we're trying to fulfill God's creation mandate for us. Sin makes childbirth exceedingly difficult and dangerous for mother and child. Sin contributes to dysfunction in the home. It causes the one flesh union between man and wife stress. As husband and wife miscommunicate and impose their wills and preferences upon one another as they forget that they are supposed to look out for the interests of the other, the one that they're supposed to love. Sin increases the difficulty of the work that we've been called to do on God's behalf, making it increasingly more frustrating for us. While we might be able to accomplish a significant amount despite the difficulty of work that God has assigned us, the work that we do will ultimately lead to futility, as all of us, great or small, will return to the dust from which we were made. Sin is the problem. Sin is all of our problems. Our overall purpose has not changed, but life is not as it was fully intended to be. Yet still, yet, yet we still must do what God has called us to do in our lives as we await the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, knowing that God's purpose for his creation does not change despite sin, especially since it's through the gift of marriage that God has advanced salvation history, particularly through the birth of Jesus Christ, we ought to be determined to hold in high esteem God's purposes for us. Now, this is not necessarily a get married and raise children kind of sermon. Because I do recognize that for some of you, the effects of sin has made it difficult to fulfill some of these purposes that God has for us. And I want to be sensitive to that. But I do want to affirm to you, despite the difficulty, the inherent goodness of marriage and raising children, whether they're your own children or you adopt them or you foster care, adopt them, those things are all still very good in God's purpose and in God's plan. But why? Why are they still good, even if society is intent on delaying these things or making excuses for why they're not important as you pursue your career? They're important because God has made them an integral part of his design. It's a part of his creation mandate. And so, on a practical level, if you want to get married, it's a good thing that you desire to do. If you believe that it's God's will for you to get married eventually in your life, the question I have for you is, what are you doing now to prepare yourself for marriage? How willing are you to do whatever it takes to be as godly as possible so that whether the Lord allows you to get married in your desired time frame or outside of your desired time frame, you will be found ready. Having developed a godliness in your character so that what stands out to others is not necessarily your appearance or your supposed maturity, but your godliness, 
And I'm not talking, brothers and sisters, about a perceived godliness. I don't know how many times, some of you I've talked to, um, but I don't know how many times I've asked you, what do you like about this girl that you're interested in pursuing? And you say to me, oh, she's godly. And I ask you, what part of her is godly? What makes you attracted to her? And you say, oh, well, I saw her holding a baby, or you know, she's faithful coming to church. It's like, hey, that's not godliness. You just think godliness is there, and you, put it, you project it onto her, and then you say, she's godly, therefore I'm allowed to love her. No! You don't even know her. You're just projecting godliness onto her. Sorry, I didn't mean to get that, that amped up about it. But, but, but what, I'm, what I'm saying is how godly, brothers and sisters, are you willing to become to attract the right kind of, right kind of helpmate? What are you willing to do? You say you love God? Show it. Show it. Even if it doesn't seem like it's going to pay off right away. In 1 Timothy 6, 3-6, Paul speaks out against those who are attempting to use their godliness for their own personal advancement. But he does come back and he admits that godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. He's not talking about material gain. He's talking about spiritual gain. Now, this is you know, a step or two down the road from what Paul's talking about, but it still applies. Your pursuit of godliness, even if God does not allow for you to get married when you want or at all, is not a waste. If you pursue godliness for the purpose of marriage, thinking that if you're, gonna, if, if you're godly, God will let you get married, and you don't get what you want, you're going to be frustrated. You're going to be angry at God because you were trying to use your godliness to get what you wanted. But what I'm trying to say to you is that if you have God's perspective, if all you really want is God and he just brings your helpmate along the way, it's not going to be a waste. And even if he doesn't allow for you to get married and you're in your singleness, that's not a bad thing. Being in your singleness is not a bad thing. God has purposes for that too. God can use single individuals to bring himself great glory, to do work, that married people can't do because they have to take care of their families. So your singleness is is not something that is to be despised. Do not despise your singleness. Rather, use it to the best of your ability for the glory of God, knowing that even if God doesn't give you what you want, he's giving you something better himself. And of course, you're probably thinking, easy for you to say, you're engaged. Probably true. But, I mean, it's definitely true that I'm engaged. But what I'm saying is, it's, it might seem like it's easy to say that God is better, but he is. He is. Going back to that, that heart diagram, if you believe, if you have as your core belief that God is better than everything else, than your sinful desires, than your good desires, than your hobbies, whatever it might be, if you truly believe that God is better, it makes it easier for you to respond emotionally to that, to have a passion for God that doesn't care necessarily about the things that you miss, but that loves God so much that all you want is more, 
And that drives, that affection drives your will. It drives your choices. See how it kind of works? If you feed your heart with the right core truths, your emotions will fall in line. And when your emotions fall in line, you will choose what is better. You'll choose what is better. And it will be better because you'll get Christ. And that's why Paul says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And for some of us, we say, dying is not gain. It is not gain. Because I want to live. There's so many things I want to do. But if you have the right perspective, dying is gain because you get Christ. You get him faster than everybody else. It's a race. God doesn't promise marriage to anyone. He doesn't promise that we're going to get what we want if we pursue hard after him. That's the, that's the problem with the, the prosperity gospel, isn't it? The problem with the prosperity gospel is if you, if you pursue as much godliness as you want, he's going to give you the desire of your heart. And usually that's material things. But the desire of your heart, and, that, and what that verse is saying, right? If, um, when, it, when it says, uh, follow after God and he'll give you the desire of your heart. What that verse is saying is not, oh, if I follow after God, he's going to give me the career that I want. He's going to give me the relationships that I want. That's not the, the core of that verse. The core of that verse is, if you follow after God, the desire of your heart is God. And he'll give you that desire. God doesn't promise that we're going to get whatever we want if we follow after him. But he does promise that our faith will not be in vain. Because at the end of the day, our ultimate good will be God himself. And until then, we look with eyes of faith, entrusting ourselves to him, waiting to see what he will bring in our lives. I admit, I am hesitant to tell you these things. It doesn't seem like it, but I am. Because I don't want to give you false hope. I don't want to be insensitive to any struggles that you might be having in these areas. But I know that at times talking about the goodness of God's design can lead to frustration if we feel like we're being barred or prohibited from what God is saying is good. I can't tell you why God has prevented you from experiencing what he calls good. But in this time of trial, and for some of you it is trial, I want to assure you that God has not forgotten you. He's not forgotten you. He's still good. And he still loves you very much. And as hard as it might, might be, we have to continue to entrust ourselves to him, knowing that as we patiently wait for whatever comes next, he's going to bring us our ultimate good. He's going to bring us our ultimate good. We have to move on. But as we affirm the goodness of God's creative design and the mandate that he gives us. We want to see how that mandate works in the relationship roles that he gives us. Okay, I won't be able to cover this fully, but the third thing we're going to look at is God's purpose for role distinctions. After what we've studied thus far, it's very clear that though, that though we are equal in importance and person be, personhood before God, we have different roles. We have different roles that God has designed for us to fill. The differences in our roles does not mean that there is a difference in value. It doesn't mean that one is more important than the other. We have different roles, but we're equal before God in standing. And of course, I can imagine someone objecting to what I'm saying, saying, easy for you to say, you're a man. 
You don't have to fight inequality, and that's true. But let me assure you of the goodness of God. The goodness of God's intended role distinctions between men and women as we look to what God's word has to say about role distinctions. We've established earlier that men and women together are created in the image of God. We reflect in our lives an aspect of the relationship between the Godhead. This is not just in the fact that we're thinking, feeling, and choosing beings. It's reflected in how the picture of marriage brings two equal thinking, feeling, choosing beings distinct in their persons and makes them one when they get married. Does that sound familiar? It should. Because that's how we describe the Godhead in Trinity. The Godhead is comprised of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They are three distinct persons, equal in power, glory, and perfections, yet they are one. See the parallel? Marriage is a picture of the relationship that, that exists between the Godhead as they mutually love and submit to one another. We do the same. They have different roles and functions, but this doesn't mean that they are any less God than the other persons. We've covered this a few weeks ago, but back in Philippians 2, 5 to 8, we saw how Jesus, who existed in the form of God and already had equality of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbly submitted himself to the Father's will to die on the cross so that he could save mankind. In doing so, God the Father recognized the humility of the Son, raised him up to life, and highly exalted him, giving him the right to bear his own name, to reign and to rule as king. Mutual love and submission between God the Father and God the Son. Before Jesus is crucified, Jesus tells the disciples that he will pray to the Father in John 14, that the Father will give them another helper, a helper just like Jesus. That's the Holy Spirit, to be with them, to abide with them. The Holy Spirit, though equal to God the Father and God the Son, submits himself to their will and works hard in the lives of every believer, enabling us to fight against sin and to grow in Christ-likeness. Before you may be tempted to view role distinctions as evil and the symbol of inequality, please look at how the Godhead understood role distinctions amongst themselves and bake that into the way that we are made in his image. Role distinctions are not meant to be despised, but are present even within the Godhead. Sin has caused for us to distort role distinctions and to abuse them. But in and of themselves, role distinctions are not bad. They are good and they're from God. So we should embrace them as ways we can show God's purposes to others. Now I know that some of you might be thinking, okay, I understand that we are equal in person. We have different roles, but what does that look like? What can I and can't I do? It's a great question, and it's a question that is asked a lot. Almost every single biblical counseling conference I've been to has some sort of session that covers how men are to love their wives and what women should do if their husbands don't lead. Every single one. So this is not, this is not an issue that I intend to solve tonight because it shows up in every single conference. There are struggles in application. 
still, always, always will be until the Lord returns. What I do want to point out, though, is that we have a lot to do in examining why we hold to certain perceptions of manhood or womanhood and whether our perceptions line up with what Scripture defines. Even if we have pictures of what biblical manhood and womanhood look like as a result of our conversations that we have with people here at church, are those pictures accurate according to the Scriptures? I'm getting you to think about what you've been told. Do they, does it line up with what the Bible says? Or are people imposing cultural beliefs on top of biblical ones and trying to get you to believe that that's biblical? For example, we are told that because man was created by God to be the head of the house, which is true, that he gets to lead in everything. But at times, we take this leadership aspect too far. And we believe that leadership, therefore, means that the man takes all the initiative and that he makes all of the financial decisions all by himself, even if finances are the wife's strong suit. Where do we come up with that? Where do we come up with that? I don't see that in the scriptures. In Proverbs 31, 16, the famed Proverbs 31 woman considers a field and she buys it. From her earnings, she plants a vineyard. That's a family-impacting decision, is it not? She, of course, is not doing this independently of her husband. They're talking about it. They're making financial impact. Um, they're making the, the family decisions together. They work in tandem. They work together. Yet she does the action of considering the field and buying it because he's entrusted her with that responsibility which is why he praises her later on at the gates. The picture that we get here, um, or the picture that we have of the husband being the sole breadwinner and decider of all financial matters, even if he's not good at it, is a cultural one. It's not a biblical one. Ladies, if you are better than your future husbands, or your current husband if you're married, at handling the finances, you guys need to talk about it. You need to talk about it. And you need to see how you're going to strike the balance of making financial decisions together. Right? He ultimately has the, the final call, but he should be trusting you. Right? He should be trusting you. And, you know, honestly, we know when we're not good at something. Right? We know when we're not good at something. And if it really comes down to it, you just need to be like, hey, you're awful with money. You need to let me help you out with this. doesn't have to be just him because he's the man and he's supposed to show leadership okay sometimes leaders okay good leaders delegate good leaders de delegate when they're not good at something so that the some the, so, so that the people who are good at the things will um good at the other things will will help out in those areas right delegation is important now a quick word on leadership before because we have to move on Men, you are called to be the leaders of your homes. You do need to learn how to lead your families. But that does not necessarily mean that you have to take on a persona that's not your own. It does mean, however, that you need to learn to listen. And not just like, yeah, yeah, I hear you. Let me go on and do my, go about my, my tasks. All right, listen, men, listen. 
It means that you have to learn to be mindful of others, to take into account their preferences, to take into account how they're feeling, to take into account their perspective so that you can make a good and informed decision. It's not all on you. You don't need to have pride like that. That's not what leadership is. You take into account all the factors so that you can lead your family well, so that you can make good decisions, even if they're hard decisions, based on all the facts and all the preferences and whatnot. Leadership means that you stand up and that you take responsibility to care for your family. And taking responsibility also means if you screwed up, you admit it. You messed up, you admit it. We don't like admitting it, but brothers, you got to admit it. Take responsibility for your actions. If it's your fault, take responsibility for it. Don't blame it on any other one else. Take responsibility for it. Don't be like Adam who said, well, she did it, not me. Right? You gave her to me anyway. It's not my fault. And that's what he said. Don't be like Adam. Be like the second Adam who took responsibility, even for stuff that's not his. You don't necessarily need to make the most money in the house either. Right? But you need to provide. You need to work. You need to work hard. You need to be a servant leader, not a dictator. Okay? You're a servant leader, not a dictator. You need to be a man of God, ultimately. For ladies, when you say that you want your husband or your future husband to lead, that is not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. Okay? It's not a bad thing that you want them to do. You want them to take on the role that God has given them. It's a good thing to desire. But I do want you to consider what leadership looks like in your own minds. Right? How do you define leadership? What are your expectations? Because if you want your husband just to make all the decisions and just to lead you like a general, would you actually like it if he just made all the decisions and told you what you're going to do, when you're going to do it, where to go? Would you like it? Would you actually submit to that? Or do you think that he's just acting like an overlord rather than someone that you're supposed to work with alongside? When you say you want your husband to lead, you really have to think about what does leadership look like? What are your expectations? Because the reason, and the reason why there's, there's those biblical counseling um, sessions that always talk about, oh, my husband won't lead, is because there's an expectation, there's a picture of what leadership looks like, and oftentimes men don't fit that picture. So what does it look like? There's a lot more to talk about, of course, uh, and we'll, we'll get into some of it um, next week when we look at God's purpose for sexuality. But what I want to emphasize here is when it comes to role distinctions, we have to be genuinely and thoroughly biblical when it comes to what we can and cannot do. You have to study the scriptures, and where the scriptures are clear, where there's great clarity, you live it out to the fullest. For example, when it comes to teaching in the public setting of the church in 1 Timothy uh, 2 to 14, Paul limits teaching to the men because of the male headship which had been established at creation and because Eve was the one who was deceived. So he bases his argument on creation. And so when we see that, there's clarity there, and so we have to live it out to the fullest. Of course, there are some exceptions. Like, and, you know, missionaries will always look at this and say, like, oh, but what about in cases where there are no men? Well, you still don't. It looks different. It's, um, we don't have time to get into it. It looks different, though. Right? And, and there is precedent for it. Um, but you, you can't just say, well, Scripture doesn't apply here because um, 
because I don't feel like it. Okay? When the scriptures are not as clear, like in those cases with missionary, in the missionary context when you don't have men who are literate um, or who understand the scriptures, you think about principles. You operate in principles. And you see how those principles lead to your conviction. However, even in coming to those principles, you have to recognize where you may have to hold your convictions a little less tightly. There might be evidence within the scriptures for your view. For instance, there might be evidence within the scriptures that say that for women to stay at home to care for their children is a good thing. But if you say that women ought not to go to school at all, because it's good for them to stay at home and to raise their children, that is going beyond the bounds of Scripture. Scripture does not say that. Ladies, if someone tells you that you can only be godly if you stay at home as a mother, they are going beyond the bounds of Scripture. That is not true. That is not true at all. That conviction doesn't stand up to what the scriptures say. It doesn't stand up to the great skill found in the Proverbs 31 woman. She was highly educated. It doesn't stand up to the example of Priscilla, who along with her husband Aquila schooled Apollos in Christianity because he was preaching a slightly inaccurate gospel. We always have to hold an intention, right? We're, our allegiance is to the scriptures. Our allegiance is to the scriptures. So... We humble ourselves and we submit ourselves to the scriptures. This evening, we got to take a look at what the Bible has to say in regards to gender and to primarily to role, our role, gender, gender role distinctions. We see that God has a particular purpose for gender, that he established at creation. Men and women together bear the image of God. And it's for that reason that marriage ought to be highly esteemed by Christians since marriage is a picture of the love that exists within the Godhead. Of course, you also know that marriage is a picture of the love that exists between God and his people, Christ and his church. We'll go over that next week. Right? But despite the presence of sin, God's purpose for us have not changed, which is why we as Christians must do whatever we can to fulfill our creation mandate. While sin has made things more complicated, we know that God's purposes and intentions for us and our roles as male and female are not to be rejected. They are not to be despised. They are not to be revised. Rather, we must see how we can work together to fulfill God's purposes in our lives. There's much more to talk about, but this is only the start. So let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you for the clarity that has found your word. And we pray that, Lord, we would strive to live out as much of it as we can. We pray that as human beings who have been made in your image, that we would strive to represent you as well as we can in this life. Help us to strive to be as Christ-like as possible, not because we want to get things from you, but because we love you. And as we do that together, as we keep in mind your purposes for us, your mandate for us. We pray that you would help us to be deeply committed to your glory, knowing that that is our greatest and highest good. 
We pray for much grace as we consider how we live out these principles. It's your son's and we pray. Amen. Well, thank you so much for your attention. I do have some discussion questions.